Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he begins to settle, one is brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, his, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and implored, sorry, they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summonsed him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So before we jump into that, I just wanted to kind of address a little bit of the elephant outside. Why Why are we outside? Um, we are, you guys know there's a new mask order, mask mandate in place, yeah? Yes. <laughs> uh, so we, the elders, are, we're praying and thinking about how to have a long-term solution for how we approach this. And so I just wanted to kind of a little family chat here, like for now, we can be outside. I wasn't even sure Friday because the air quality was tanking. It was pretty bad. But for now, this is a great option. This is a beautiful spot. It's got a stage. It's got covered. You guys are in the shade. Um, but eventually, there's going to be smoke or rain or whatever, and uh, it might not work. So in the meantime, my request of you guys is just to remember that we uh, are a community that has differing opinions. We are a community that has differing uh, ways of viewing this mask mandate, and that's okay. And so my, I just remind us, I was thinking about this this week, Nikolai and I were talking about it, and I was thinking about, I was thinking about the disciples. Jesus hung around with these 12 guys that were a pretty diverse bunch. 
In fact, one of them was a zealot that was known as, like, they were known as knife men. They would kill Roman sympathizers. Pretty extreme. And then one of them was a tax collector. You could not get more opposite spectrums politically. And yet, in discipleship of Jesus, they became family. And they found a way to look past some of those differences for a common mission and a common vision in following their master. And so what we are asking at this point right now, I think forever, (laughs) but find a way, even if you're on polar opposite sides of this issue, this mask issue, find a way to be disciples of Jesus, follow after him, and be people of the gospel even now. And so if that means we're outside and it's uncomfortable, and I'm comfortable, but then we'll do it. If it means we, when we go inside, we all wear masks or whatever it means, we don't know yet. We do it for the sake of each other and for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Okay. There'll be more, I mean, we're, we're thinking and praying about a long-term plan with that, but for now, we'll leave it at that, okay? All right, let's jump into our text. We are coming up on the end of the Apostles' Creed series, believe it or not, and <laughs> apparently we, we don't actually have it memorized, which is kind of funny. Maybe we should take away the screens more often. Uh, there's only a few weeks left, only a few weeks left. And we're coming, we're in this bit, this last section, where the creed, um, the theology gets a little bit more practical. So we've spent the past few months looking at what it is that we believe. What do we believe about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? In the last three weeks, we spent, we took time and looked at the church. What do we believe about the church? both the Catholicity, the universal nature of the church, and yet that deeply connected communion of the saints, the family aspect, the family expression of the church, the place where we work out the things that we believe in our discipleship. And today it gets even more tangible. It gets even more practical for us today. And even, even as like big and grandiose as the next few weeks The next two statements are the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Those are actually very practical, too. These are real things. I said a few weeks ago that the church, our community, is the context that we work out these things that we say we believe in this creed. And the forgiveness of sin, that line that Levi missed... (laughs) is the perfect example of that. This is the context where we work out what it means to believe in the forgiveness of sin. So this week, my plan, my I like to tell you kind of where I'm going before we go there, uh, is to first look at what does the creed mean by the forgiveness of sin? And then secondly, how does this play out in our community? How does this play out on a week-to-week basis. And so to understand 
how this statement even made it into the creed, we have to do a little bit of church history. So you guys ready for a little history lesson? Yeah? This, uh, scholars say, this was a late addition to the creed. This, this statement, the forgiveness of sin, was added later. Sometime probably in the early 4th century. And what happened is, towards the end of the 3rd century, there was the bloodiest most aggressive of the Roman official persecution policies. There was this policy that had developed where Christians were being brutally persecuted and tortured for their faith. Their books, their, their, uh, the Christian writings, the scriptures were being taken and burned. And there were three main responses to this persecution. This is like late... Uh, 300 AD. Sorry, early 300, 303. Some Christians refused to give in. They refused to give up their, their scriptures. They refused to give up their, the, the letters and the things that they had. Uh, and as a result, they were tortured and killed. That was, that was how that worked. Some gave the Romans other books, said, oh, this is our scripture, but it wasn't actually. And so they would, they would get off because they were giving, some, giving them false books, but they were making it look like they were giving, giving them the scriptures. And others gave up the scriptures. They gave up the Christian text. They denied the faith so that they wouldn't be persecuted and killed. They said they, their argument was it would be better to lose a book than to lose my life. And so they would give in. Well, this created massive problems when a few years later, when the persecution policy ended, and now all of a sudden, these people who had denied the faith publicly wanted to come back into the church. And so as they sought reconciliation, the church had to wrestle with this question that I think, honestly, I mean, we, we wrestle with this question. What do, we, what do we do with people who have committed terrible sin or who have denied their faith? Do we accept them back into fellowship? Do they need to be baptized again? This is the, these are the questions that the church is wrestling with in the early 4th century. There was a position that essentially said that the church was called to be holy, right? In their minds, the church was called to be morally pure and to be a witness of the truth of Christ, no matter what. And so they argued, how then could we accept back these who have clearly denied the faith? This group ended up forming their own sect and leaving uh, the, the main group. Historians call them the Donatists. Most scholars think that it was in response to this division that this line was added to the creed that this phrase was added, the, we believe in the forgiveness 
of sin. Why is that backstory important? Why is that bit of Christian history important? We say every week that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin. And when we say that, we're acknowledging that there's a tension between the holy people of God, the holy Catholic Church, and the loving people of God who are a forgiving people and a forgiven people. There is a tension there. And I think we're still wrestling with this tension today. We might not wrap it in quite the same philosophical, theological terms. We're not quite having like councils to debate this. But we still struggle with accepting somebody back into the church or into our fellowship or into our friend group, someone who's committed a grievous sin or who've denied their faith or who've done something that just bothers us or sometimes is just annoying. It's hard for us to accept them back into, the, into our friend circles or into our church. We are quick to cut off those who have hurt us. Or we view them as tainted and dirty. The question that they were wrestling with in the early 4th century is, the, is very much relevant to our community. What is it that makes you a follower of Christ? What do we do if somebody has strayed from the path of discipleship? Is the church a community of the pure? Or can struggling, weak, and uncertain people find a place in this family? And what do we do if somebody sins against us? Somebody in the church, somebody that you're friends with. What, if, what do we do if they hurt you? And this is why, this is part of the reason we include the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon as part of our liturgy every week. We need to remember and acknowledge that we have all sinned. We all stand guilty and in need of the blood of Jesus. The church is not just for the pure. It's not just for the successful. Failures in discipleship, even dramatic public ones, do not exclude a person from the grace of God or the communion of the saints. Refuge, we, we are not a community of the pure and successful. We are not some like perfect people. We're not demigods. <laughs> We are, and until Jesus returns, we always will be a community that needs to be patient and understanding towards the timid, towards the imperfect, towards the dirty and tainted. Our scripture reading that we read this morning, well, not this morning, this afternoon, is one of, I think, the clearest teachings on this in the Bible. That parable Jesus tells in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 forms, it's the fourth of Jesus' teachings, large sections of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. He has one more to go in Matthew. But this one is, and we, we often talk about the Sermon on the Mount. 
or the Olivet Discourse, but this one's ever bit as much as challenging. The disciples come to Jesus, this is how the chapter starts, and they're asking Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest of the disciples? And Jesus, it's a great chapter, you should read it. And Jesus then lays out multiple ways of how to deal with sin that's there in the community of disciples. This is the chapter where we get the concept of leaving the 99 to pursue the one. This is the chapter that we get the prescribed method of restoring somebody who has sinned in the church. And yet we get Peter asking this question. Peter comes to Jesus, and he essentially asks Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive somebody who has sinned against me? How many times, Jesus? Peter suggests seven. That's a big number. Somebody's hurt me. Seven times sounds good. I can do seven. Jesus essentially says, if you're still counting how many times that you've forgiven someone, you're not really forgiving them. You're just delaying revenge. Jesus says 70 times 7, or your Bibles might say 77 times. There's a little bit of a problem with the way that Greek is translated. It's typical Jesus for kind of playing with them. The whole point is stop counting. And then we come to this parable. Many of your Bibles will label this the parable of the unforgiving servant. The story is essentially about a slave who has brought before his master to settle up his account. And he's found to be owing 10,000 talents. Now, how many of you have used a talent? <laughs> you know how much money that is? No? No one? We need to stop and think carefully. Your Bible translators purposely left some work for you, some homework. You got to think about this. They didn't translate that into your currencies. So we need to think a little bit about what exactly is that. A talent is a denomination of money. It represents about 6,000 denarii. Denarii was the approximate pay of a day laborer for one day's labor. That means this slave owed his master the equivalent of 60,000 days work. That's roughly 200 years of work. For context, I think in our context, this would be a debt well over $15 million being called due now. That's pretty heavy. It's a lot of money. As the parable goes, we know that the master forgives this massive debt. Let's read that part, starting in verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that they had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. 
And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the servant has his debt called due, and what does he do? He does the same thing you and I would do. We try to fix it. (laughs) Try to fix it in our own power. He says, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. Give me more time. This should sound familiar to you. This is, hold up, hold up, I'll fix this. I'll find a way, I'll fix this. I'll, I need more time. I need more, I need more uh, resources. I need, I need to, maybe I need to get counseling. I need more, I need more space. I need more uh, whatever. You're trying to fix it. But what the master does is he has pity on him, says it re- he releases him and forgave the debt. There was no need for him to earn it or work his way towards it. No need to try harder. He released him and he forgave him. And this is how our God, because of the cross, relates to us. Even in all of our striving and working, he sees us. He sees us when we come to him. And when we come through repentance, when he sees us, he sees the blood of his son and he responds. He doesn't see all of your striving or your sin. He sees his son, the finished work of the cross. Jesus has made atonement for you. And because of the cross, we too, like this servant, are released and forgiven of our sin. This is Romans 6.23, the Romans road, right? For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we, as a community of faith, as a family of God, as the church, we are a forgiven people. We are bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of the second person of the Trinity. He paid the price. So this is a happy story, a story of forgiveness. This is the stuff fairy tales are made of. This guy just had $15 million forgiven until it isn't. (laughs) Because what happens next is staggering and yet not too odd if we're honest. This man that has just had that massive debt forgiven, he goes out and he finds somebody who owes him money about the value of a hundred days work. So let's call that like twenty to thirty thousand dollars. It's not an, not an insignificant amount of money for sure. But when you hold it up against the massive amount that he had just been forgiven, it's drops in the bucket, right? And what's even more striking to me about this story is the exact way that this servant responds. He responds in the exact same way that he had just responded to the master. He falls on his feet and he pleads for more time. You would think this would stir up the recent memories of when he was just doing the exact same thing, falling on the feet of the master, begging for more time. You would think this would like recall memories of that. 
But instead, he does not act like the master. He does not respond like the master. He has this other servant. He chokes him, and he has him thrown into debtor's prison until he can pay, figure out a way to pay his debt. What happens, we know the rest of the story. The master calls for the unforgiving servant. He calls him a wicked servant, and he says that he, he should have shown mercy to his fellow servant. But because he did not, he himself would now be thrown into prison. And Jesus ends this parable by saying something that's so intense. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's intense. And that's actually not the first time Jesus has said this. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, in the the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray for forgiveness. And then at the end, in verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14, Matthew 6, 14, if you're looking for it, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. At first glance, that that scripture almost seems like an equation, right? It could it, people often take it this way: if you forgive others, God will forgive you. That's just works. If you do that, John Owen said this. I think it helps explain this. He said, "Our forgiving of others will not." Pro- procure forgiveness for ourselves. But our not forgiving of others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven. Often, I think the reason we don't forgive others, the reason we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, we turn on people, is that we are not convinced that we ourselves are forgiven. I think this goes two ways. Perhaps we think that we have our stuff together, that we're doing things right, and we're deceived. Or maybe we have such a sense of guilt that we try to feel better about ourselves by downplaying other people and making them lower in our minds, elevating ourselves based on other people's failures. But the point of this parable, I think, should be clear to us. We are like the servant with the enormous debt that has been forgiven. We are a forgiven people. That's the point of this statement in the creed. It means that those of us who recite this every week, that we are a part of this church because we are forgiven. We believe in the forgiveness of sin. When we declare the forgiveness of sin, because without it, we wouldn't be here. We would not be a part of this community. It is the forgiveness of sin that pays the entrance to be a part of the church. 
We are like the servant who has been forgiven this tremendous debt. And so if that's true, how is it then that we who have been forgiven so much can insist on being paid in full whatever others owe us? We say things like, he was so rude to me. He didn't even thank me. That's it. We're done. I'm cutting him off. Or maybe somebody talked about you or said something that was unflattering. Maybe even untrue. That's it. I'll never forgive him. We're done. We must remember how much we have been forgiven. We can't act like that. We are the forgiven people of God. The key thing here is not that we should just swallow our resentment, not that we should forgive and forget and just walk on. That's not what I'm saying. We don't just pretend like nothing happened and try to just move on. The key thing is that we should never, ever, ever give up making forgiveness and reconciliation the goal. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus never gave up on you. He never gave up in pursuing you. If confrontation has to happen, and and sometimes, let's be honest, it does. Sometimes things happen where it needs to be addressed and confronted. It must always be done with forgiveness and reconciliation at the heart and never revenge for a Christian. There's no room for revenge. N.T. Wright had this quote, and I thought it, it beautifully pictures this. He said, Forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There is only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you have just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give somebody else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more for yourself and you will suffocate very quickly. There's one more key, I think, to this passage, this parable that we need to look at. When the unforgiving servant comes to his fellow servant, when he approaches him, he is seen, whether he likes it or not, this is a wealthy servant. He is seen as a representative of his master. Whatever this person does, it reflects on the master. And so as the servant here, the unforgiving servant, chokes his fellow servant, refusing to forgive and show mercy in the way that he had just been shown mercy, he is saying something not just about himself, but about the master that he serves. And when we withhold forgiveness, when we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, we are saying something to those people about the God that we serve, whether we realize it or not. It's, it's preaching like a false gospel about who Jesus is.
Jesus said that they will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love each other, by the way that we care for each other. And when we harbor unforgiveness, we completely misrepresent the nature and the character of God. We completely misrepresent who Jesus is. So we believe in the forgiveness of sin. We believe that we stand as a community, not on our own achievements, not on any elitism, not on good looks or good politics. It's not masks or no masks. None of that matters. We stand as a community of broken and sinful people, deeply loved by the Father, washed by the precious blood of the crucified and resurrected King, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit and placed in a family, even if that family is people that you don't always agree with or that irritate you, so that we can learn in this life to be more like Jesus, to follow in his ways and to do what he did. I'm going to end here in a minute. But my prayer for us this week as we we go into even the second set of worship and we take communion, my prayer for us is that we would be a community that is patient, understanding towards each other. That we would remember that we are a forgiven people. That we would remember to practice the way of Jesus even when that's uncomfortable. That we would have each other's highest good as our motivation. That we would openly and honestly confess our sin and deal with it with our brothers and sisters in the family. Amen? I'm going to pray and the worship team can come back up. Father, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you did pay the price, that it is by the precious shed blood of your son, of Jesus, that we have the forgiveness of sin. God, I thank you that we are a forgiven people, that we have had a tremendous debt covered by your blood. The price that we could not pay, you paid on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would remind us even more of how much you have covered us. God, I pray that we would be a community of forgiving and loving people that we would bear long with each other, that we would deal openly and quickly with offense and with sin, that we would engage each other rather than run from the conflict. Father, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.